Are you wondering how to find happiness in a disrupted world? In this episode, I speak to Dr. Lindsay Weisner about her book, 10 Steps to Finding Happy. But we don't stop there. Our conversation includes humor, brutal honesty, and deep insights on important topics, including parenting, trauma, suicide, and the power of resilience. It usually comes down to measures of resiliency, but it is something that we can teach and it is something that we can learn even as adults. And I think that's how we get through this. And some of this involves tech and some of this involves stepping beyond the tech. So how can you find happiness in a disrupted world? And how can the power of resilience help you not only get through this time, but experience meaningful growth? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Dr. Lindsay Weisner, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Adult conversation threw me for a loop for a moment, so I'm happy to be here. Hey, you know, I can relate to that. As a mom of four, I'm looking for adult conversation all the time, especially now. Yeah. Especially yeah. now. So tell us a little bit about you and your work. Sure. I am a clinical psychologist. I live in Long Island, New York. I sort of accidentally fell into specializing in suicidal teenagers. Before that, I worked a lot with anxiety. I also have my own podcast called Neurotic Nourishment, where it started as a podcast for like smart, sweary moms so that we had some sort of outlet. And now it's sort of evolved into a place to talk about things that you're not supposed to talk about at cocktail parties, just like serious issues that we're uncomfortable, but we should be more comfortable and we should open up our political, emotional, social lens to those who are not like us. So I really like that. And I also uh, recently became a Psychology Today blogger. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. It's called The Venn Diagram Life. It was an accident. I asked them if they would cover my book release. I had a book that was due, was released on March 20th, which was the first week of quarantine. But we wow. were having a big event, and I asked if we could have someone cover it. And the response I got, the very generous response I got from the editor-in-chief was like, no, but you're pretty qualified. Do you want to be an expert blogger? And so I jumped and got my own blog. So there's that. And then I am the mom of two kids and they may or may not survive this um, homeschooling. So, yeah, I think a lot of people <laughs> could relate to that right now. Can I be in this unexpected circumstance of homeschooling or, you know, e-learning? It's been an interesting journey. Yes, it is. I learned that my son tells me he does things and doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. I had one of those. <laughs> yeah. Or I, I learned that they yeah. don't remember to press submit. And so. <laughs> oh, yes. It's like, it's like a mystery. You have to pull the threads and figure out where did that assignment go that they promised that they finished. Yes, I know. Yes. We've uh, been through that too. And then I have the other one who's kind of perfect. Yeah, like, that's all right. Because it's a girl. She cares. So go figure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, tell me a little bit about the book. It's called 10 Steps to Finding Happy, and it's 10 scientifically backed up steps, like easy things we can do to get ourselves happy. If I could go back in time, I would say happier, but there are certainly things that apply now. And it's myself, my co-author, Selene Castrovia, who is a very widely acclaimed and yet not as well known as she should be because she writes for in a variety of genres, but she's written children's books, Revolutionary War, books for children. She's written young adult books, adult books. And now she decided to write a, a self-help book. I have never read a self-help book. And yet when she asked me to read a draft and I was like, sure. And then I realized that, well, you know this, I'm a, a total science stat geek. And everything she said could be scientifically proven. I asked her if she wanted a co-author. And I think she agreed largely because of the doctor in front of my name. And then we recruited 24 expert writers in various fields to talk about how they found happy in their lives or how they made it through a difficult time or how they defined happiness. So 
it's got a lot of interesting perspective, a lot of voices, and you're bound to like one of us. And it's on Barnes and Nobles, it's on Amazon, and we just released an ebook. For those of you who are not my people and like ebooks, because I don't, I like the smell of the book. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Ebooks are super popular right now. And I was telling you before, uh, when I was driving more, I used to listen to a lot more ebooks than I do now, being at home all the time. But uh, sometimes you appreciate a paper copy of a book too. Yeah. But I guess also now, like during the Corona craze, you know, the, it's probably safer to download for your Kindle or, whatever reading device, you know, although my book is safe too, I promise. So (laughs) (laughs) of course, through the research of your book, you said, you know, obviously you love data and you love science and doing research. What was one of the biggest learnings that you had in that process of kind of getting data behind happiness for the book? Sure. So you mean like the biggest surprises or the biggest, yeah, um, biggest surprise. So I guess something a couple things. One is I learned to think about how I define happiness differently. And I don't think it's naturally a given. Like we expect it to be, you know, in today's society, in our developed countries, in our, I mean, that both like politically and also like culture, technology, et cetera, we take it for granted that we should be happy and we question why if we're not. But I actually think that it's just not natural. Like it's not human nature to be happy. That's like safety, you know, I mean, think about cavemen. They were not, you know, like happy was like food, shelter, safety, sex, and probably not in that order if I know the average caveman. So it was really just being able to provide a sense of security. That was happy. Happy was safety. And now we have this expectation And I'm obviously not referring to people who are like clinically depressed, but we do have this expectation that we should be happy. And the truth is it's a choice and it takes work. And you have to make an effort every day if you want to be happy and also perhaps adjust your expectations and what is happiness. You know, certainly now, and I think this is sort of connected to gratitude, but like it finally hit me the other day that although this time really stinks, We're also like, I'm having moments with my children that I don't normally, like my husband taught them to ride a bike because I was way too anxious to watch this process. And I actually went on my first family bike ride, you know, or well, my husband was at work, the three of us went and I realized I've never been on a bike ride with my kids. And it sounds crazy and like bad mommy, but just the way the division of responsibilities worked out and also the fact that I work six days a week the bike rides were normally on weekends and I got to go on a bike ride. It was miserable. We were yelling and screaming and I was, you know, or even just sitting there and like reading with my daughter, you know, these are moments we're getting more time with our children. And yes, at some point they do grow up or so I hear. And so I try to remember that in the midst of the climbing numbers and fears and anxieties and frustrations. And that's, I guess, my choice to be happy every day. Also, it's scientifically proven that when you try something new, your brain, it basically thinks you're drinking alcohol because it starts firing all over and, you know, synapses and happy hormones. The same thing as like if you're working out, your brain loves new things. And so that's a pretty easy way to be a little happier is to take up a new hobby, even if it's a dumb one, because we're all stuck inside. Right. (laughs) All sorts of creative stuff we can do. Look on social media, you'll see it all the time. All sorts of challenges or things that people do uh, to keep themselves busy. But I think it's interesting that you mentioned, like, it's not necessarily a natural state to be happy. But you hear people say all the time, I just want to be happy. Why can't I be happy? Or sometimes even projecting, why can't you be happy? Right. But I think the people that say, why can't I be happy? You're spending more time feeling sorry for yourself than actively trying to do something different. Yeah. That's my guess. And this is obviously unless there's a clinical depression, which, you know, which exists. But if you want to be happy, try to do something like anything. It's funny. I'm in this mom's group because they're my daughter's friends and my daughter's like, like pretty and perfect. And, you know, so all of her friends are too. And then the moms are too. And then there's me who's like the struggle bus in sweatpants most of the time. And and every night at like four thirty, five o'clock, they start sending around pictures of the dinner they've made. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Finally, I found one of my patients sent me a meme 
I was like, look, I cooked fish tacos and it's goldfish inside a taco shell. And so last night was my night and I sent it out out to them. You know, but they're enjoying it and I'm just, it's fun. Like, and it's something new. I didn't used to talk to these women on a daily basis and now, or not even to talk to text with them on a daily basis. And now I do. And it's one of the little girl's birthdays today. And so at 1.50, we are meeting at the high school and then caravanning in separate cars safely to the girl's house to sing her happy birthday distance-wise. And then I guess we're all going to send Amazon gift cards because presents don't Mm -hmm. apply. But um, apparently her mom baked an individually wrapped cupcakes for us and the girl has no idea it's coming. And so it's cute. And I think this is our way of making an effort to find a way to be happy, to find a new way to celebrate birthdays for now. Yeah. I've heard a lot of creative ways to celebrate birthdays or make people feel like they're not losing out. First of all, of course, a lot of kids feel like they're losing a lot of things right now, whether it be like a senior in high school, you're losing your, maybe losing your graduation, losing your prom. Oh, I felt awful for them. Yeah. I've got a fifth grader who uh, was going to go to middle school, you know, so she's supposed to go to middle school and they're supposed to be this big parade out of the school. It's a big tradition. Can't do it this year. I feel badly for them. I do. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's definitely a transition. Uh, you know, a lot of those kind of cultural things that we come to expect or traditions we come to expect that aren't happening. Even just like Easter. Oh yeah, I was going to go. So I'm Jewish. Passover is tomorrow night, gotcha, yeah. and we're trying to figure out how to do it. We're going to do it virtually. I invited my my family is in Florida. I'm in New York, and I asked them you know, just if they wanted to do it as well. I mean, I think it's going to be a disaster. I think it's mostly just going to be like virtual drinking together because there's a lot of wine involved in Passover. You're supposed to have eight glasses of wine. Wow. Yeah. I actually, when I was in my twenties, um, we went to one right after college where one of my friends, you know, like he held a full Seder where we actually drank the eight glasses. We were trash by the end of it. So no one actually does that. It's usually just a sip, but, um, but you know, I think it's a fine to find a way to, to celebrate and we'll do it virtually and it'll be a disaster and we'll laugh and it'll be a memory. You know, this is, it's funny when we were talking about what to talk about and all that stuff, you know, we, we discussed my interest in suicide, not committing by the way, and how the pandemic is going to affect it. And also war, like how war affects this. And in some ways, I do think as we're talking, like this is the same sort of stuff that happens during wartime, you know, where you have to find a different way to do things where whether you're lacking supplies and gifting, I wish I had a a good example, but we just watched the Hunger Games last night. So now my brain's going back to like not real things, but like you find a different way to give gifts, you know, like animal pelts or whatever they did in the Hunger Games. And so it's really just about us all learning to make more of an effort to find moments of happiness, I think. Right. Yeah. And so that's, that's interesting. And I think a lot of people are working to try to figure that, that out. Having to change. Yeah, they, should buy my book. they should all buy my book. They should. <laughs> You know, some people know. have extra time on their hands. It's a great thing to read. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just also a great time to find happiness where we can and also understand our own kind of power and our own ability to, to do that or create happiness for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. This is true. So tell me a little bit more. I mean, I know you've been doing a lot of research lately, so I'm kind of yeah, like you. I love to research stuff. What's the greatest finding you've uncovered recently? Well, it sounds, I, I don't know how to talk about suicide as good, as positive, but um, yeah. I did actually, I had a theory that you and I had spoken about. And my theory was that the only upside of the pandemic would be suicide rates would go down because my association was in countries where there is a famine, you don't have eating disorders or you don't have a high percentage or something, you know? So the idea being eating disorders are very much about control and there is a similar, I think, underlying element of suicidal attempts and ideation where it's um, feeling really out of control and unable to manage your own emotions. So my thought process was that since there is so much going on now that we can't control, you know, and so many restrictions and whatnot, there would be fewer suicides. And so I started by trying to look into uh, previous pandemics, which is kind of useless because like, it just, there's not a lot there, you know, they're so rare. And also 
they're so poorly defined, you know, time-wise and whatnot. And and then the ones that we do have were sort of minor compared to what's going on now. So it it didn't really fit. And then the other problem with pandemics and suicide research is that we've also got another variable, which is, well, we're all like, everyone's getting fired. So there's a huge economic stressor. So if we did find a, a decreased rate in suicide, how do we, like, how, where does that fit in? And moreover, it, with everyone losing money, it's also possible suicide could go up. Like, I, it's just unclear. I couldn't find a clear rate. But then I started looking into, and I believe you suggested this, um, 9-11 and Katrina. Mm-hmm. And that was super interesting. So at 9-11, suicide rates absolutely went down and they stayed down for quite a while. And I think that's because anyone who felt alone felt less alone when we were all, you know, we were all struggling as a nation to adjust to a new normal. And also because those who had lost loved ones, I think there was such a huge support system and such a huge reach out that the suicide rates stayed low for longer than expected after that, because there is always a rebound rate. With Katrina, it was really interesting. So suicide after Katrina, it actually went up three times as much. And so I was really struggling to understand that. But the answer is quite simple. It turns out guns do kill people. See, after Katrina, people felt less safe, and rightfully so. The place was a mess. Louisiana was a mess. New Orleans was a mess. You know, the people were dislocated and disenfranchised, and a lot of people purchased weapons. And in fact, the increase in the availability of guns is most likely what resulted in that increase after Katrina, because it wasn't like immediately after. It was there was a little delay, and then it spiked like crazy. But there were some positives. Before Katrina, about 6.1% of people were reporting mental health issues. And after Katrina, went up to 11.3%. So more people were seeking help, which is good. Uh, There was obviously an increase in PTSD, but there was also an increase in something that was referred to as post-traumatic growth, where 8 out of 10 people reported finding a new inner strength. And nine out of 10 reported finding meaning or purpose. These were not the people that killed themselves, obviously. These were the people that sought out mental health services. And then after treatment or after whatnot, they did report that there was something more positive that they experienced. So I do think that we can eventually expect some post-traumatic growth when all is said and done from this. I want to get back to that because I do have some ideas on how we can encourage ourselves and our children to to get that post-traumatic growth. And I think that's important. And I think that is going to be tech dependent, I know is your your thing. Just real quick, I I also found a lot of information about World War I and World War II and suicide rates. And um, pretty much I was looking for like a difference between the winners, you know, and the losers and like how, you know, like... Germany clearly lost World War One. We're pretty clear on that, which is probably why we had World War Two. That's like the only thing I remember from history class. So, and I had to look up winners and losers. But in general, across the board, regardless of if you were your country was actively involved in the war, there was a a significant de- decrease in suicide during the war, and then. It went back up after, but not as much as before. So there does appear to be that renewed appreciation for life. I was interested in Germany, but Germany apparently has always had, well, like Germany started off with a higher suicide rate. And so it didn't give me anything huge. Like I was thinking, you know, big rate. The interesting thing is there was a difference between the males and the females. And during World War One, the male suicide rate went down and it was significant, but the females, there was nothing, nothing significant finding. And then, if I'm remembering correctly, World War II was where women started like being a little more badass, correct? 
Yeah. It was a Rosie R- Riveter. That's what yeah. I'm thinking. Rosie the Riveter, right. I could have gone with that, but because I couldn't remember her name, I just went with badass. Um, <laughs> so here you've got the same like suicide rates go down during war and then up again and then not, you know, up, not up as much. There wasn't really a huge difference between the winners and the losers again because it was all relative to where they started from. But this is where it gets interesting. So, um, Men, their um, decrease was significant before the war, but it wasn't like the increase in suicide was not significant after the war. Women who finally had a purpose and a place, which by the way, find your purpose, find your passion is one of my 10 steps. So women's suicide decreased significantly during the war, but after it was, it didn't go up like it should. You know, like women were clearly not as thrilled uh, statistically to come back and have their usefulness sort of taken away or challenged or whatnot. So I thought that was really interesting. It was um, that like after the war, women were more depressed and more <laughs> likely to kill themselves, I guess, possibly because they'd gotten this taste of freedom of power and then. And then there's the struggle, the gender equality struggle that obviously still exists to this day. But so I thought that was really interesting that when you are fighting for your life, you don't take your life as much, which is good. So I think we have, we do have a positive in this, in that we should see a decrease in suicides during this time, hmm. right. which is almost not what you'd expect, but I think that's what I'm expecting now. Right. I think it's interesting. There's so many different parts of that uh, dynamic that could contribute to things like suicide rates or even just rates of depression or even just access to care right now. It's true. You know, I know I have and I have a lot of, you know, therapist friends I've met through podcasting and whatnot. And we're all doing everything we can to offer services and lowering rates and anything we can. And yet I've gotten some really harsh responses like uh, via social media or like people are looking for someone to get angry. And the fact that I'm offering help makes me a target for their anger. I actually just did a Facebook live and posted it on YouTube about last night with Dr. John Schinnerer, where he's an anger management expert. He's awesome. And he was the psych consultant for Pixar's Inside Out, mm. which is actually really where I think he's cool. <laughs> like, I yeah. think I'd like him less for that. Yeah. yeah. But he and his fiance are both uh, psychologists. And so we interact a lot and talk about what's going on. And it's true. It's the, the anger is is rising now. And that's unfortunate. And social media makes, I mean, I make myself an easy target for it. And in fact, I, I've offered classes and help and people just decide they want to yell at me and curse at me. And one person even told me that people like me are why people commit suicide, which was a wow. little confusing. Yeah, it was really harsh. It was a it was unbelievably harsh and it was weird. It was it started off with her asking if I offered anything at a discounted rate and I asked what she was looking for and I got back this like tirade of curse words that even I would not air on your show. I mean, it was just weird and it was bizarre and I think um uh, I think I noticed it in my house too. Like there are times when I'm angry and it's getting directed at the wrong, you know, like I'm angrier than I should be about well, homeschooling, and I'm angrier than I should be that my kid can't find the submit button. And, you know, and my husband is even angrier than I am about this. And so we all have to sort of try to take everything in stride and remember what's important. Right. I've kind of experienced that too. People having just, just let's say mood, mood outbursts, yeah. mood issues. I think it's pretty common. A lot of people talking about being cooped up at home, even creating some mood issues, arguments and things like that wouldn't, that wouldn't necessarily be typical. And, you know, what's, what do you think that's rooted in? Is it really kind of like a fear for the unknown or is it just kind of a disruption of our lives? Maybe all of the above. I think it's also, you know, it's funny um, in therapy they we like to say that the therapeutic room is like, that room is like a microscope where like everything that we get to experience, everything that goes on outside the room, but in an extreme. Yeah. It's, just, it's a very Freudian way of looking at it. So like, you're supposed to like really analyze everything because whatever we're seeing in the room is also present outside the room and is also probably, you know, interfering with the patient's in, uh, interpersonal functioning. But what we have now is like, depending on the size of your house and how many people are there and who's working from home. And this is an extreme. Like I said, I'm finding those moments of gratitude, but like, I have not spent this much time with my 
kids in years. And even then, like, I'm not, you know, because I, I do see patients a few hours a day and they, you know, they're doing their work. We're not on each other every minute, but like, it's going to take its toll. And I think if you don't have anyone, it's probably worse. And I think, you know, it's probably more difficult. And I think if it's just you and a partner, you got to be real careful not to, to sort of separate out. The best advice I can give is to have separate workspaces and then come together at a normal time, the same way you would if things were, you know, were normal. There's been a huge rise in domestic violence all across the world. China, I think it's three times as much. Mm. Uh, Google search engines or engines are reporting. See, I just spoke about this last night, so it's like sort of fresh in my mind, but not really. Google search engines are reporting a 75% increase in, oh, I have it, in um, uh, people searching for domestic violence help. Lebanon and Malaysia, uh, it's doubled domestic violence. South Africa, there were 90,000 reports of violence against women in the first week of quarantine. Mm. And then even in this country, in Houston, between February and March, the domestic violence reporting went up 20%. And in North Carolina, it was 18%. And thankfully, in Europe, women have figured out because they're really only leaving to go to the pharmacy. And so they've worked out a code with the pharmacist where they say uh, mask 19. And it basically means I'm being abused. I need help. And then the pharmacist calls the police and, you know, help is given, but, but it's really escalated all sorts of violence, which is really awful. But if you're around an abuse, an abusive man and, or you have abusive tendencies and, or you're just, I don't know. I don't have the classification of how severe these, you know, domestic violence incidents were, but regardless, we're clearly feeling angry and someone's feeling not safe when someone reports this. Right. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, um, if you say there's, there's kind of things that we're learning through this yeah. process. And some of those things are very good. Some of those w- things are very upsetting. And I think the rise in domestic violence, I think, was anticipated by a lot of de- domestic violence experts going into yeah. this you know, moment of time of isolation or kids staying home all the time, not going to school, incidents not being reported as a result. And I feel like, you know, even personally feel more motivated to help give back to those agencies that help those people in need, which is becoming a, more and more difficult for them to do at this, this point in time. Right. Because how can you, you can't investigate something. I mean, can you do it virtually? It depends. You yeah. know, it depends on um, socioeconomics. It depends on availability and privacy and, and all that stuff. So, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, obviously the challenges of the moment, the things that are being uncovered, the, you know, the good and bad of human nature, I suppose. But also, I think the importance of connection and interpersonal connection. Right. Right. Interpersonal connection. Yeah. yeah. You want to hear my happy? Is that I, what you're going to ask? Yeah. Let's switch gears and talk about something happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, remember I had said earlier that there was, you know, the scientists were labeling it um, post-traumatic growth mm-hmm. and, and it's like an inner purpose or an inner meaning, an inner value. So the question that I would want to know, and I did want to know, and then remembered the answer and was like, oh, brilliant, is how can we help ourselves and our children become those that that get that growth, mm. you know, those that benefit from that growth. And so I went back to another one of my favorite uh, psych topics, which is resiliency, which literally it's like, if you think of the human emotions as a rubber band or something, it's like the ability to snap back into place when things go wrong in your life. So there is a He's a pediatrician and a psychiatrist. He's got like 8,000 degrees. His name is Kenneth Ginsberg. And he um, put out a book, a bunch of books, um, but it's basically the seven C's of resiliency. And that's C, but then it's funny because it's C's, you know, like oceans, but mm-hmm. I don't know if, I don't know if the hit kids would ever catch on to that, but I think it's funny. And so it's these seven qualities that we can improve in ourselves and others in order to help us get through this. And a lot of them, I think we need tech for. I really do. And so, you know, right now we're relying on it a lot, but, and it's our only form of communication and we need it. And so it needs to be something positive for 
ourselves and our kids. And that's why we love doing this, you and I, where we meet new people. And with one of the C's, we'll get to that. Um, so the first one is control. Uh, there's a lot we can't control right now. A lot. So whenever possible, offer choices to your children, to your spouse, to your friends, and to yourself. Yes, routines help, but you also have to like also give yourself a choice. You know, I'm thinking about exercise. Like I am a fantastic over drinker and overeater and I've gained eight pounds in 22 days, which is amazing. Especially if you consider the fact that I have been forcing myself to work out twice a day. And so, and it's like a stress reliever. That's my attempt and it's not doing a great job because obviously I'm just hungry and you know, whatever. <laughs> but I gave myself the luxury today of being like, you know what? If I don't feel like working out, I'm not because I need a sense of control. And also because I had to do my hair and makeup for you to look pretty. So there you go. You look great. Thank you. And it's always a pain in the butt when you like do it and then undo it and then do it again. So we'll see where the day goes. And to your kids, it's, you know, it's something as simple as do you want to start your work now or do you want to watch TV for an hour or do you want to talk to your friends? They're also, you know, interacting through, games my kids don't play multi-person shooter games they play like roblox which is a yeah i don't know you you build stuff i don't know what yeah. you do my husband <laughs> check that out so yeah but it's a way they're connected to friends and the first week of quarantine they were playing almost exclusively with kids who were friends of my high school friends where like we all got together on new year's and the kids reconnected and so like they were all playing together and it's a good it is a good way for them to make new friends, you know, or they're in these group chats and it's something. And so I give them the opportunity. I give them the choice wherever possible. And, or even like, well, what do you want for dinner tonight? Or should we go for a walk or should we bike ride? Something where they feel and we feel like we have more control than we actually do because there's a lot of things in life we can't control. Yeah. The second C is competence where um, point out what they're doing well, point out what they are good at and also give them the ability to try new things so that they can try new things that they're good at. And then as long as your your kid isn't a Debbie Downer, because one of mine is a Debbie Downer, and then it's like, I suck at everything. But, but still, point out what they're doing well and do the same for yourself. Hmm. It is tough. And we're not being perfect in any sh way, shape, or form. And right. like I said, I gained eight. I mean, I am good at gaining eight pounds in 22 days, but you know, but also like the truth is I'm keeping my ship ship together, literally ship um, the best way I can. And also my other stuff together the best way I can, because, and I have to give myself credit at the end of the day, my husband and I disagree. He's really into like, this homeschooling has to be done correctly. Every assignment has to be turned in every this. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of like, yeah, we're not going to virtual Hebrew school tonight at 4.30 because we're exhausted and we, we did a good job, you know, like just sort of titrating your tolerance, I think. Yeah. that Which is huge, you know. And sometimes that's going to be you're really good at playing Roblox or like, you know, I noticed you're, you're very good at um, helping your sister with her homework. Just something to boost their sense of self-esteem and something to boost ours also. And number three is coping. And this one, I do want them to move away from tech for uh, coping skills. We try to do it an hour of art and an hour of reading at the end of it. Like we end our days sort of the same way at around like three or four. We go for a walk. We come back. We'll do some painting. And then we'll, we'll all read together before dinner or after dinner, depending on my husband's schedule. It's normally not a full hour of art because my daughter hates art and then my son gets bored of reading, but it's an idea. And we've also started them, I would encourage journal writing, both mm. for us adults and for children. Another technical option is pet therapy, but I would just say pet your cat or pet your dog or expose yourself to nature mm. because we do need different coping skills and we spend all day staring at screens right now. Sunday night, my daughter and I spent 30 minutes watching a raccoon climb a tree while our neighbor's dog barked at it. And it was hysterical because like the neighbor couldn't see the raccoon. We could. And she kept coming out to yell at the dog. Finally, she came out and introduced herself. And I told her what her dog was barking at. 
I've never spent 30 minutes watching a raccoon climb a tree before. I probably never will again. There may have been yeah. alcohol involved in that, you know, <laughs> but, but there was something about just getting away from the screen time and just trying something, yeah. you know, it was soothing to stand out there with my daughter and laugh. And we Facebook lived it, which was ridiculous because no, who the hell wants to watch 30 minutes of a rabbit, uh, you know, of a thing, whatever, but it was something and yeah. it got us away from her norm. Number four, improve their confidence. You get this by trying new things. You can also get this from those damn video games they keep playing. <laughs> so if that's what they feel good about, that's what they feel good about. And for us, I don't know. I feel good about like my, looking up statistics that I think are really cool and other people might not. Or I feel good about when I put up a new blog entry for on Psychology Today. I would feel good if people bought my book because I have no idea how it's doing because needless to say, other people think that getting like vital supplies are more important than telling me how many copies my book has been sold. Although I disagree, but, you know, <laughs> but like find a way to, to feel good and to feel confident. And I like my job. I like what I do. And that makes me feel good. And then I like when I meet new people and we brainstorm about a topic to share and hopefully it helps someone. Yeah. Number five is connection to a community. And um, I think it was initially called community, not connection to community, but but it's in normal circumstances, that means people that are involved with like a church or it doesn't have to be a religious organization, but like the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts or what are they, the Brownies, some sort of community thing. They do tend to uh, have, it, it inspires more resilience because you you know that you can come back from anything negative because you have a group behind you. You have other people that support you and believe in you. And so, yes, for right now, our communities are found online. They get to, you know, that's why every morning my daughter's teacher does a Zoom with them. And it's a little bit of teaching, a lot of teacher being annoyed, and a lot of the kids just getting to see each other. So, and that's why I'm tolerating this mom's group with all of these <laughs> like homemade lasagna with like, oh, I made the noodles. I'm like, oh, I ordered food. Leave me alone. <laughs> like, but it also gives me somewhere to belong. You know, number six is character. And this, we have to help explore our own and our children's, our values, what we believe in, what we believe is important. Listen for a little while. And in some places and in some areas and some ages, people are still resistant to the whole social distancing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the teenagers in town are, I mean, they're still slutting it up and making out like assholes all over the parks. And I'm sorry. And, you know, that's probably where the death of us will lie, but not really. <laughs> but if I had a child that age, and sometimes I'll talk about this with my teenage patients, I'm like, but how, what's more important? What do you value? What's important for you? And it's a time of self-reflection for us as well. Yes, there's going to be a, a huge financial strain and it's going to get worse before it gets better. And yet our families, hopefully for the most part, are safe. And, and if our families are safe and our loved ones are safe and all of those things, does it matter if anyone reads my book? You know, <laughs> you know it's one of these things where like you both seriously and um, humorously, you know, you, you take a look at what's most important and what you believe in. And I think that's also something you have to come offline for, particularly now when we're so dependent on technology for our human interactions. And the last one is contribution. And this is what you and I were talking about before, but you feel like you're a part of something by giving. Mm -hmm. And I think there's probably also a subconscious selfish reassurance that if I feel part of something by giving, to people who need help. When I need help, perhaps someone will give to me. I saw someone posted online and I signed up to be a part of it. There's this old people at nursing homes and hosp you know, hospitals as well, like uh, both psychiatric and medical, you know, that you can't have visitors. So I signed myself and my kids up for uh, like to be matched with an elderly person and, and have a phone call you know, just to say hi. Last night I saw the cutest thing. Matthew McConaughey is playing bingo with, you know, Zoom bingo with people in a nursing <laughs> home. It's so cute. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just ways to let other people know that they're not alone, even if 
their supply to the outside world has been cut off. It's really sad. My husband works in a, you know, inpatient psych ward and mm. they have to keep the patients in the room, in their rooms most of the time for safety reasons. And so they're lonely. And like, you know, I was trying to brainstorm with him if, if there's anything we can do or like, you can't really give a lot of things on a, an inpatient psych ward. And, you know, my husband just says like, I spend most of the day walking around and talking to people and, you know, just to let them know they're not alone. Mm. And that's how he's contributing. Um, tons of people are, you know, making masks that are probably totally ineffective, but it makes you feel better and it shows your children you can help. I guess checking in on your, if you know a neighbor who's alone or a friend who lives alone, checking in with a, a phone call or a FaceTime or anything like that is helpful. And it makes you feel like you're part of something. And hopefully it makes you feel like if, if and when you need something, there'll be someone there for you. And all these things, if we can instill them in our children, are going to help them bounce back from this and help us bounce back from this. Because um, there's resiliency in adulthood too. Survivors of any sort of abuse, you know, or war or trauma, there's always some that do a little bit better than others. And it usually comes down to measures of resiliency, but it is something that we can teach and it is something that we can learn even as adults. And I think that's how we get through this. And some of this involves tech and some of this involves stepping beyond the tech. Yeah, absolutely. But it's all centered on that piece of the important piece of human connection. Absolutely. And right now, this is what yeah, we've got. It is. Yeah. Let me ask you this. W what makes you optimistic about the future? I remember 9-11 very well. I had just moved from Washington, D.C. to New York. I had, which means that all of my friends were in D.C. Mm -hmm. My parents were on a plane flying back from some foreign country because they travel a lot. And my, it was a Tuesday. And on the Sunday before, I had hung out with this guy from grad school. And um, grad school is five years and 15 people. And so despite my best intentions and despite the fact that I told my best friend I was going to marry him the day I met him at orientation, we had made out. And so I drove to school totally thinking about that and then got to school and the teacher's professor ruled. She's like, you guys have to see this. I don't know why, but we did. But I was glad we did, obviously. But yeah. like we, she moved in the TV and we watched the the towers fall and uh, the guy and I, who, spoiler alert, is now my husband and the father of my two children, we basically, they didn't know what to do with us. We were in our, literally our, our third day of graduate school. <laughs> so they had us go around to check on the undergrads. And so we broke up into like pairs and I went with my husband and um, we went room to room. And I remember the weirdest was this one girl who was just like, cooking in the, the dorm room in the kitchen. And when we asked if she was we, okay, she was like, oh yeah, I'm not from around here because we just had no clue what was going on and other people were freaking out. And we were just like, we literally just knocked on doors and was like, are you okay? If you need anything, blah, blah, blah. And I remember how scary it was. And I remember sleeping with the TV on for days because I was like waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I remember all of this. And then now I have children who who think that, who've never known a time when you didn't have to take off your shoes at the airport. Children who don't, uh, there are a lot of people that don't know life before 9-11. And the way it's taught in school is it starts with uh, teaching about the boats that came to get people off the bottom of Manhattan who were like stranded there. And to um, it starts with the helpers. Mm -hmm. And that's how we teach it to people now. So I think because I remember that so vividly, because it was with my husband, it was the first, it was graduate school. It was my, I was worried about people in DC. My parents were on a plane. Like it was all this chaos. And because it was a day of such fear, I, I think I know that there is a future beyond this and it's going to look a little different, but eventually that will be our norm. I also made my husband do the math for me because I stink at math. And uh, he's the only reason I passed stats because we were partners in it. And it was like 90% homework and whatever. The professor gave up on me. But um, yes, there's a lot of people sick. There's less people dying. It feels like a lot. And I know the numbers are going up. But I did a our global... There's 7.8 billion people on this planet, probably a rough estimation. 
And if you look at that compared to the numbers of deaths worldwide, never mind in the, you know, in the US, feels scarier. It feels worse because it's happening in clusters. Mm -hmm. And also because we're more connected via technology. You mean when someone loses someone to Corona, you know, on Facebook, you know, when someone loses, when someone gets Corona, you find out on Facebook. So technology is hurting us in a way that it feels, and you know, and constantly we're um, getting updates on various politicians who, actors and whatnot who have this. So it feels bigger than statistically it is. And yet no doubt it's a global nightmare. But I, I do know that there's, there will be life after this. And I don't, for a moment, amuse my friends in this mom's group or elsewhere with talk about going back to school this year. I don't think we're going to camp. I don't know if we're starting in September. I really don't. But I do know that for these few months, if we can stay safe, we are living a life and moments that we would not have otherwise gotten the chance to. My kids and I did a virtual tour of the museums the other day. My daughter chose the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum mm. for reasons I don't know. But I love Georgia yes, O'Keeffe. I do too. But at the end of it, I asked her, I was like, did you notice anything about those flowers? <laughs> <laughs> but I think that um, that's something I wouldn't normally have had the opportunity to do with her. And um on Friday, I am podcasting with an author, fellow author whose book release is actually tonight. And um, she writes for various age groups. And so I am reading the, an older book and my daughter is reading the younger book. And my daughter is going to help me interview her so that she, which is a cool experience for my daughter to meet an author and also for me to share a bit of my podcast world with her. Mm. And so... These are things, and my my son and I do art every night, and he makes masks, and they're really interesting, and they're more moments that I wouldn't have had with them, you know? So that's where my hope and my, I don't know, that's where my hope comes from. I have my mental days, too. Yeah. We all do. We do. And we get to, you know? But I think it's about more often than not, can we see a life after this, and can we see an upside? Right. And I kind of want to go back to that point you've made about resilience too. I think a lot of people have a misperception that that resilience means that you're unaffected by things that are happening around you. And that's not yeah. what it means at all. In fact, it's, are you able to, to kind of pick yourself up after difficult times? And maybe that's where some of that hope could come from, that after we get through yeah. all this, we learn something from it. Maybe we do find some of that passion and purpose. Because of the challenges yeah. we see around us, maybe we're inspired by, you know, new problems that, that that we need to solve, or maybe we're called to action to help the people that are truly struggling right now, whether we're talking about people who are um, experiencing abuse, people who are experiencing poverty, maybe for the first time, uh, yeah. you know, out of a job, maybe, um, you know, facing things like homelessness and helping people sure. and call, you know, finding our purpose uh, and potentially call to action to help folks during this time. but. I love the fact about kind of resilience being that place that will all kind of get us back to or get fight, let us find where we want to go moving forward. Yeah, that's my hope. I mean, and I also, and I do believe that this is a time where, listen, I, I, I thought that my next book was going to be on teens and suicide for teens and their parents. Mm -hmm. And then I accidentally stumbled into something while interviewing a woman for my podcast and I'm I feel really passionately about this. And so, yeah, I think I'm going to use this time to write the things that I want to write and to, you know, and also to, I guess, more of an opportunity to raise the kids that I want to raise. Listen, they took away our spring break in New York, which was a shame because we all could have used a break. But I personally believe that a big part of the reason they took it away is because there's, if you close school, there's no one there to provide the free breakfast and lunches that they do for, for people that qualify. And we're fairly, uh, our, my town is fairly like higher SES, you know, there's not a huge amount of poverty, but um, there are kids that need it. And also there will be more now. And so what in fact they've done is the school is now saying anyone like, we're, you know, like we're not looking for your stamp or whatever, you know, like you 
can come in and get if you want breakfast or lunch. Like it's to go, obviously. But I would like to believe that our governor kept the schools open for that reason, mm-hmm. so that maybe kids have one more week of food or something. That's my belief. And so I'm not complaining about it as much, the homeschooling, you know. Right. Yeah. We we have spring break right now, but we don't have, we're just kind of kids are bored <laughs> and it feels weird. It doesn't feel like spring break like it usually would. Well, that's the other yeah. thing. My son even pointed out, he's like, what's the difference, you know? But then I realized he's not doing the work. So there is a difference. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's just an odd time, but there's, there'll be a time after this that we can kind of see, see where this all takes, see what we all learn from it, see what we do with those learnings and see, you know, if we take those and carry them forward to, to make a difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the traditions we've started now, I would love to continue if not every night, but um, I would love to continue once we, things get back to normal. Right. Well, hey, so if anyone out there is bored and needs to find some happiness, yes, it, please. It turns out <laughs> we have a book for you. So, so please check out uh, Dr. Lindsay's book. Remember. 10 Steps to Finding Happy, and it's uh, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, and now available in ebook or Kindle or whatever it's called. Fantastic. I should know, but I don't. Yep. Yeah. You can go out and <laughs> Google it. You can find it. You'll find Google it out there. It, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. <laughs> Lindsay Weisner. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a great conversation. I enjoyed talking to you. Dr. Weisner shows up exactly as she is, honestly and unapologetically, to deliver a powerful analysis of how people respond to disruption and trauma. She also provides actionable insights on what you can do to find happiness, build resilience, and recognize avenues for post-traumatic growth. While a global pandemic may deliver significant challenges, you have the opportunity to navigate towards a better place by finding happiness while experiencing meaningful growth. I'd also consider following Dr. Weisner's example of showing up exactly as you are and finding ways to contribute your knowledge, strengths, and ideas to help shape a better world. So, instead of wishing you happiness, I encourage you to go find it. And if you need a guide, grab a copy of 10 Steps to Finding Happy. And then, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Dr. Lindsay Weisner, check out her Psychology Today blog, The Venn Diagram Life. You can also find her Neurotic Nourishment podcast on iTunes. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.